I want to read uh, first uh, the scripture lesson from today. Um, we're in Galatians. Our scripture lesson is chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Galatians 3, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then this, it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. That's where we are. Galatians 3. We're going we're gonna to slow it down a little bit, as I said. Um, we'll get through, though, this summer with this book. Just a, 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 just a short introduction from where we left off. Just remember, Galatia was, a, uh, was located in Asia Minor, became a Roman province in 25 B.C., modern-day Turkey today. These cities in Galatia uh, had been evangelized through the gospel preaching of the Apostle Paul during his first missionary journey. Uh, many churches were planted, and now Paul is writing back to these region, to this region in Galatia, to the cities, and to the churches in these cities. Uh, and he wanted, he's wanting this letter to be circulated among brothers and sisters in the churches in Galatia. It was, and the reason we, we, we've been talking about this, we keep going back to this, is that false teachers had infiltrated the church after Paul had left and came in and, and infiltrated the church and proclaiming a false gospel. And Paul is deeply concerned and, 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 and somewhat righteously angry over it. Probably one of the first epistles he wrote. He's, new, he's young in the ministry. And he launches into an assault against the false teachers because the churches of that region were under attack. In the first two chapters, Paul defends his apostolic calling, his, his apostolic authority, the apostolic message as the one who's been appointed and anointed by Christ, one who's been taught by Christ, one who's been sent as an apostle of Christ with a true message. And, and, he, and he's telling the church, listen to the message I am proclaiming, I, that I have already proclaimed and that I am proclaiming in this letter. Don't listen to the false gospel. The false gospel was that God's grace was not enough. Jesus Christ's perfect life was not enough. The substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Jesus was not enough to be justified, to be made right, to be saved, redeemed, rescued from hell, sin, Satan, and death. We needed to add to your faith in the work of Jesus the work of the law of Moses, to adhere to the law of Moses, starting with circumcision. And Paul says that this message is corrupted. This message is distorted. It's twisted and actually says, actually from, from the pit of hell. It smells like smoke. You cannot, you, you cannot add 
You must not add works to grace, works to faith. And Paul is perplexed. And and, in a short, brief introduction to the first five verses, he launches into this anathema, this damnation of this false gospel. Chapter 1, verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you out of grace to a different gospel. Verse 8, even if an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one I'm preaching. Says it twice, verse 8, verse 9, let him be anathema, accursed, damned to hell. (laughs) Last week we looked at chapter 2, verse 16 through 23, where Paul so clearly and eloquently lays out the truth of the gospel, the good news. That's what gospel means, good news. That we are justified, made right, forgiven and declared righteous in Christ alone, by faith alone, not by any works of our own. This came immediately after, if you remember, uh, Paul rebukes, the Apostle Paul rebukes the Apostle Peter. Peter's not demanding that they be circumcised, although that was, that was the, the heart of what was going on, but uh, he might as well have done so because he's, he's uh, walking not in step of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 14, what happened? He was, he was stopped eating with the Gentile believers when some Jewish people came to Antioch, and he knew full well, Peter knew, that uh, the unclean Gentiles were clean, the same way the Jewish believers were clean, un- Gentile, unclean, Uh, according to the Jewish law, became clean the same way. They were all washed in the blood of Jesus. And by withdrawing, by Peter withdrawing from the Gentile believers during this time of table fellowship, Peter was, by him doing that, Peter was validating the false teaching by adding works of the law to faith in order to be justified. How can God accept me? How can God accept you? How, How can we stand righteous before God? We cannot be saved by anything we do. It's what Jesus has done. He died on the cross for our sin, rose from the dead. Anything we do cannot add to that justification. There's no way to make myself right with God because I am unrighteous. (laughs) Jesus made it right through the death and burial of resurrection. And all that is left for us to do is to receive his gift by grace, by faith, by putting your trust in him. And Paul makes it very clear. And you need to know this. We're going to launch into chapter 3 in a moment. You need to know this. We've got to stop trusting. It's really hard. In your performance. I was talking to a lady this week. Don't go to church enough. Okay, let's start going to church. I don't pray enough. All right, start praying more. I'm all for that. So God won't accept me. That's a lie. It is because God accepts me. It is because of the righteousness of Christ. It is because of faith. It is because of all that Christ has done that I want to go to church. It is because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to me and by faith alone I've been rescued and redeemed. No work of my own that I want to read my Bible. There's a difference. And the motivation we saw last week changes for a believer who gets the gospel right. We don't work toward righteousness. It's been imputed and then we serve the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ, and no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me, and the life I live in the flesh, in the body, I live how? By faith in the Son of God who loved me (laughs) and gave himself for me. Never, ever get tired of hearing that. Never. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now in chapter 3, 
having already established his apostolic calling, authority, and a message, he goes on to the defense of the gospel, what the reformers would call the material principle. What is, he's defending now, making it really clear what justification by faith alone means. And, and he appeals to, first he appeals to the Galatian church for this public witness. And we'll talk about that in verse 1. Then an appeal to their conversion experience, the work of the Holy Spirit, all pointing to justification by faith. And then it appeal to biblical revelation. In comes Abraham. Okay? So that's where we're going. Chapter 3. Things begin to change, and now he's defending the justification by faith. And he writes, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It is before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. What is Paul doing? Paul is, is turning now his righteous anger and somewhat of his frustration towards the ones that he loves. Towards the ones that he saw God work miracles and, and give birth and, and form these churches. And he calls them foolish. One Greek commentator writes this. Foolishness means it, or it denotes the stupidity that arises from the deadness and impotence of intellect. End quote. Calvin writes this, that the Son of God with all his blessings is rejected and his death is esteemed as nothing, what godly mind would not break out into indignation, end quote. Just as Paul is doing here. If you ever read a Philip's uh, paraphrase Bible, he writes this, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, surely you can't be so idiotic. And, and the prefix O is, is a, a motive uh, participle reinforcing the, the indignation. Ah! Oh, ah! Oh. Right? I mean, before you say, well, how could Paul call them idiots and love them at the same time? Think for a minute. Okay, enough said. I mean, we need to be careful using language like this, let's admit. I mean, he does call them brothers in chapter 1, verse 11. He calls them my little children in chapter 4, verse 19. Paul loved them and wanted to restore to to them this this wholeness, this spiritual and theological soundness. And sometimes, beloved, we have to talk, rebuke in tough love. He confronted the Galatians with their folly so that they would bring, they would, they would come back, they would turn from their folly and come back to the truth, forsaking the danger, which, they, which he calls, they are being bewitched. Bewitched is what they call hepax legomenon. It, it, I did my homework this week. Um, it's the first time and the only time in all of Scripture this word is used just once in all of Scripture. And, 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 and what it means is they're being harmed through, due to lies, Due to deception, due to false promises. It's even related, this word, to sorcery and spells. It's, it's what they would say, like, cause, look at an evil eye at you or demonic power. And I don't think Paul is saying, who bewitched you, as if Satan showed up and a demon showed up and was bewitching them. But I do believe, I do think, that Paul is recognizing that these false Judaizers, this, this another gospel does come from the enemy. If you're here this morning, you don't believe in demons and and the devil and Satan. First of all, it's not biblical because the Bible clearly teaches it, number one. Number two, just watch the news. If you don't think taking a baby at nine months old and killing it is evil from the pit of hell, I don't know what to tell you. 
He's saying these false teachers, these false gospels, this false gospel is coming in and it smells like smoke. Listen, the greatest, one of the greatest ways in which Satan and evil works is deception. It is deception. And if he could get you and I deceived of the truth of the gospel, then he has victory. And because you notice what he says, he says, verse 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, who has bewitched who? You, he says. Is he talking to believers or unbelievers? Paul's writing to the believers in Galatia. Who's being bewitched? Believers are. They're being deceived. That should frighten you. That should frighten me. To be diligent. Right? I mean, false gospels abound. We're not talking about a different interpretation of end times. You know, your mid-trib, you know, post-trib, pan-trib, it all pan out, or, you know, your millennial, I'm millennial. We're not talking about, you know, how does the spirit, you know, what kind of gifts are, are, you know, how to interpret gifts. We're not talking about things like that. We're talking about the nature of God. False gospels will come against the nature of God, the sufficiency of Christ, the efficacy of Christ's work on the cross. And the reason for his astonishment at their folly is that Jesus was publicly, see that? He, he was publicly portrayed as crucified. It, the work of Christ on the cross was vividly, that's what Paul is saying, vividly communicated when he was there preaching the gospel. The word portrayed comes from the world of advertising. The Greeks would use it to refer to a public notice. What the Galatians had seen through the preaching, the proclamation was this graphic public display not literally, but the words and the preaching of, of the gospel. It wasn't a, a lecture, a dry kind of unmotivated message. It was, a, it was a picture that was painted through the preaching of the word. So moving of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Family, we have to stand firm on that. What's also very interesting about this text is the word crucified is in the Greek perfect tense, which means it's not just that he died, but he rose. It's the work of the cross and the empty tomb. Listen, Jesus was was crucified on a precise day by particular men outside a certain city on a specific tree. It's an event that took place historically. And on the cross, Jesus gave his life as the once and for all atonement for sin. After living a perfect life, he dies as our sin bearer. God by rising him from the dead, accepts the sacrifice. By his mercy and grace, the sacrifice of Jesus was made and accepted for full payment of our sins. That's what it means to portray Jesus Christ as crucified and also to preach him risen from the dead. Years ago, uh, when I was living in Rockland County, um, a man, an older gentleman, came to faith. First his wife came to faith, then he came to faith. It was very interesting how it happened. The pastor at the time, John Cherico, was my pastor as well, brought the man into his office and declared the gospel to him, showed him in scripture and shared the gospel with him. And he told the young man, he told the man to go downstairs and to, to go into the gathering space, the sanctuary area where they worship, and just to reflect on the work of the gospel. And the man gives his testimony. He says he went down to the area and sat by himself and began to think and he began to pray. And when he opened his eyes, you know what he saw? A cross, just like that one. The Lord used that with the preaching of the word. He had always seen crosses, but they were crucifixes with Jesus on them. 
And the Lord opened his mind and his heart to, to receive the gospel. That Christ was crucified, but he's not on the cross. That the resurrection of Jesus revealed to him that day that his sin and shame that put him on the cross was forgiven. It's empty. The tomb is empty. The cross is bare. He began to cry out to God. First he began to cry, then he began to cry out to God for salvation. The cross and the resurrection must always take center stage in the church. Paul told the Corinthian church the same thing. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He said, we preach Christ crucified. Or we resolve to know nothing among us except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, and he hopes that their bewitchment will come to an end as they remember the significance, the sufficiency, the work of Jesus on the cross. Paul was upset with the Galatians. He would be upset with us this morning if we did not remember the cross. That's why it's core value number one. Eternity, gospel redemption, the work of the cross. He laid out for them that he's been crucified and risen from the dead. And some, some, some false teachers came in that picture that he painted and wrote right over it in graffiti. Not enough. I think it's a good reminder now. I've said this before. Let me remind you. The good news of the gospel. The gospel, the good news, is not advice. It's good news. Good news is not an invitation to do anything to somehow prepare for something that needs to be done in the future. That's advice. Good news is a declaration of what God has already done. Not a requirement, but an offer. And Tim Keller writes this, The gospel is an announcement of historical events before it is instructions on how to live. It is the proclamation of what has been done for us before it is direction of what we must do. End quote. Paul appeals to them with the gospel proclamation. Now he appeals to them from public witness. Let me ask you, while we're on the subject, let me ask you this question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or are you hearing with faith? Public witness, sorry, let's just say from conversion experience, my, my mistake. So an appeal from conversion experience. Let me ask you, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer many things in vain? Indeed, if it was in vain, does he, is another question, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing by faith? There's a question. All these rhetorical, fast-fired questions at them is for them to, to wake up and to see does a Christian obtain experience, the Holy Spirit, by, by doing things that God has required, or is it by faith? Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? Through the word of Christ. The Galatians couldn't possibly deny the experience <laughs> that they have received the Holy Spirit by faith in Christ. And I want you to notice quickly here the work of the triune God. One God, we worship one God, exists in three persons, Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. Each person involved in the work of a sinner being saved. The Father planned the work of salvation. He sent the Savior in whom we must have faith in. And now the Father and the Son sends the Holy Spirit to convert the sinner. And Paul is simply saying, hey, when you became Christians, what was the cause of this work of the Spirit among you? Was it the work of the law or was it by faith? Tell me about your conversion experience. How did you get converted? Now, conversion is what Paul is talking about. And conversion is a biblical word, just in case you're wondering. Maybe you never heard that before. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 3, unless you turn, New American Standard, unless you are converted and become like children, you're not into the kingdom of God. You will not enter the kingdom of God. He said the same thing to Nicodemus in John 3. In Acts 15, 3, when it's talking about the conversion or, yeah, the conversion of the Gentiles. That's where the word conversion comes in. Paul preached, if you remember, excuse me, Peter preached in Acts chapter 3. And he says, therefore, repent and be converted. That your sins may be wiped away in order that times refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. There's, there's conversion. It's, it's necessary to enter into the kingdom of God. It, it, is, it, it means it's, it, it's a turning from sin in repentance and a turning to Christ in faith. It involves an about face. It leads to life. It's a break from being your own Lord, your own Savior, trying to work your way into acceptance to God. It's embracing the new life in which Christ has given us by his death, burial, and resurrection and the sending of his spirit. It involves a change of the mind, of the heart. It changes the affection. And what's really important, with when one turns from sin... They're re, what the Bible calls regenerated. The conversion and regeneration are, are as one coin, two sides. There's, there's a turning from sin. There's a, an embracing of Christ and having faith in Christ. And that's what the Bible calls when regeneration takes place. Regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit uh, where, where God comes and takes a, a dead heart who's dead in sin. And now he implants his life in them. That's what he's talking about. When did you come to faith in Jesus? When, when, when did the Spirit come? Regeneration gives the gift of repentance and faith. When did the Spirit open your eyes? Was it during the work of the law or was it by faith in Jesus Christ? That's the question. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Conversion is the first exercise of the new nature in ceasing from old forms of life and starting a new life. It is the first action of the regenerate soul in moving from something to something, from, from death to life is what he means. Regeneration is the root, conversion is the fruit. And God gives us the spirit. He opens our hearts and minds to see our sin, to see our Savior, and empowers us to say, I want Jesus. Paul says, listen, when you were converted, when the Holy Spirit came, when you were filled with the Spirit, when, when you became a Christian, when did that happen? How did that happen? It's by grace alone, by faith alone. The Bible says anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Family, listen, regeneration is necessary to be in relationship with God. You have to have a new heart. You, you have to be what the Bible calls born again. John 3, Nicodemus. This is not an option. When we turn from our sin and we turn to Christ in faith, he gives us. That's what he's talking about. The Holy Spirit. Right? 
I mean, that's what he's talking about. Paul is saying, listen, either it came by the law or it came by faith. Make your decision. Which one did it came? And it's clear. It's not something. If there was something, think about it this way. If there was something you did, I don't know, five acts of kindness, and on the fifth one, bam, the Holy Spirit came. It was something you did. You could claim hold of that. You could say, I did it. I did everything I needed to do, and then God blessed me. That's the very heresy that's being taught. And Paul said, no, that's not the case. That's not the case. You didn't earn it. The Holy Spirit empowers you to do the things of God. You put the cart before the horse, right? But if if you're resting on the Holy Spirit, if you believe in faith and he gives you the Holy Spirit, he empowers you not to earn your salvation, but to serve the Lord. There's a big difference between the two. He says, oh, you foolish people that I love. How did you get converted? It was graciously given to you. Look at verse 3. Are you now, since you got born again by grace, by faith in Christ, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So let me see if I get this right. You've been born again by the flesh. Now all of a sudden you want to go back to the law and try and somehow earn your way to God. You want to somehow earn your way, go back under the law, this motivational system that moves you through some sort of moral performance. So you get saved by grace, but then you got to work your way into God's presence again. Don't be so foolish. The word perfected means complete. So now you're going to be saved by grace and somehow walk and fulfill and complete and mature by adding works to your righteousness. Turning to a different gospel. That's what he's saying. Having begun in the spirit, they're being bewitched and now they're adding and trusting in themselves. Don't do that. Paul again says it's foolishness. Now you might be saying, I don't know why anybody would do that. Whenever you and I don't live out the gospel, whenever you and I don't appropriate the gospel, grow in the gospel, apply the gospel to our hearts in all circumstances, we're doing the same thing. Don't kid yourself. You say, no, no, not me. I've begun in the Spirit. I know I've been saved by grace through faith. I know the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to see the beauty of Christ. I know it's all the work of God. I know that, not me. Really? Every time you and I lack patience, we're in the flesh and not walking in step with the gospel. Every time we feel superior to someone else, we are in the flesh and not walking in the spirit. Every time we feel inferior, we're in the flesh, not walking in step with the gospel. Whenever we are cheap and not generous, we're in the flesh, not walking in the spirit. Every time we are self-centered, looking for our own glory, We're trying to prove something. We're in the flesh, not walking in the spirit. Every time we think that we are unlovable or that we are too bad, God will never forgive me. Do you know what I've done? We're not walking in step in truth of the gospel. Listen, even if you think that because of what has happened to you, Because of what has happened to you by someone else, I'm unlovable, can't be accepted. I'm no longer worthy. I'm no longer valued, I should say. You're not in step with the gospel. And you believe the false gospel. Tim Keller writes this about anger. I love this. He says about this, about anger and walking step with the gospel. He says this, instead of just hoping God will remove our anger or simply exercising willpower over it, we should ask this question. 
If I am being angry and unforgiving, what is it that I think I need so much? What is being withheld that I think that I must have if I am to feel complete, to have hope, to be a person of worth? He says usually deep anger is because something, because of something like that. It might be that we want comfort above all other things, and someone has made our lives harder. So we grow angry with them. It might be that we're worshiping others' approval and so get angry with anyone who in some way thwarts our bid for popularity and respect, end quote. Verse 3. Don't begin in the spirit and be perfected, perfected, uh, perfected by the flesh. Verse 4. Did you suffer? Now, the word suffer, some of your translations may not have the word suffer in verse 4. Did you suffer so many things? Some of you will have, did you experience? I think that's a better word. Uh, The word can be taken either way depending on the context. I think Paul is talking about the experience. Did you experience the work of the Holy Spirit? Uh, is he is he working in you? Do do you have you experienced these things? Or unless it's been in vain, maybe it's in vain. Maybe you don't understand this whole thing has been in vain. I think he's saying it in hopes and them saying, no, it's not been in vain, Paul. We're getting it from start to finish. The whole Christian life is by grace through faith. We're getting it. He goes on, verse five, that the gospel we are justified by faith alone, not by moral, but. God uses that same justification by faith to what? Supply the Spirit and work miracles. The word supply, to supply abundantly and bountifully. Again, it's not through works of the law. It is what? By faith. First, they're being converted by the Holy Spirit. Did the work, not them. Second, they're being perfected. They need to walk carefully and in the Spirit. We're going to talk about it when we get to chapter 5. And now he's saying, listen... There's miracles among you. There, there is the, the abundance of the Holy Spirit in which you are experiencing in your life. Is that because, listen, that Jane and Bob got healed for some sort of reason uh, other than faith? Or was it because they read the Ten Commandments one day and then, bam, they're healed? Did it work that way? I don't think so. Or, you know what, how many times I read my Bible and, 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 and I read it six times standing on one leg with, you know, and all of a sudden my neighbor got miraculously born again. It's because of the work I did. He's saying, no, 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 no. The Spirit is given to us in abundance. There's, there's miracles of new birth, miracles of, of physical healing among you, not by you reading your Bible, but by grace alone and faith alone. That's what he's saying. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. So why are you so bewitched? Don't fall into that trap. An appeal from public ministry, a personal experience, and now appeal from biblical revelation. Verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham. Let's talk about him, y'all. He had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. Let's all praise the Lord. Okay. (laughs) Abraham was and is a very important figure to the Jewish people, especially the Judaizers. Abraham was not only the father of the Jewish nation, he's the source of the original blessing that came to the Jewish people. And belonging to God meant being a child of Abraham. When the Jews wanted to prove to Jesus who their father was, who they were children of, they said, we are offspring of Abraham, John 8. Abraham is our father. And therefore, it was said, 
must have been said that if the Gentiles wanted to belong to God, the Gentiles wanted to belong to God, this is their argument of the Judaizers, they had to become what? Children of Abraham. How do you become a child of Abraham? Circumcision. See, see, the, see the thought here. That was taught in the scriptures, even back in Genesis chapter 17, where the covenant sign of circumcision was given to Abraham. It's biblical, Genesis 17.10. God said to Abraham, my covenant with you, you keep it between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. But what Paul does, and you have to see this, what Paul does, he goes back even further than Genesis 17 to God's promise to Abraham for a child. You have to see that. When we meet Abraham, whose name was Abram in chapter 12, the Lord calls him from a pagan land. He's a pagan. And says, go from your country, chapter 12, verse 1. Go from your country and your kindred, your father's house and land, I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your great name, your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, in, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, Abraham... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. What does Abraham do? He gets up and he leaves. And he obeys. He follows the promise that God had told him what was going to take place. Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, but by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of him of the same promise. And a few years later, God comes to Abraham in chapter 15 and gives him a promise, makes it even more clear that this promise has to do with a son. And he says, listen, you're going to have a son. And Abraham's like, man, I'm close to 100. He's like, listen, I know how old you are. Step outside, young man. Abraham goes outside and says, look up. Beautiful, clear day. See the stars? Yep. That's the number of your children will be. Genesis 15, 5. He said, so shall your seed, so shall your offspring be. And what God promised to Abraham was impossible according to Abraham. But he believed God. He took him at his promise. And every single promise that God had given to Abraham, we have to accept the same way. And how is that? By faith. Trust. As the scripture says, Genesis fifteen six, Abraham believed the Lord trusting you with your word. I'm trusting you in your promise. I'm trusting you about the land I'm going and the son you're going to give me. I trust you. And chapter 15 of Genesis, verse 6, he believed the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness. That's what Paul's quoting here. Abraham believed God, verse 6, and it was credited to him. Counted credit as righteousness. All right, the word credit is a good English word for that Greek word. That put it in financial terms. He received money, received an account explosion, really, of righteousness to him. And, 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 and God transferred righteousness, justification, and justice into Abraham's accounts. It does not mean, we talked about this last week with the Catholic system, Roman Catholic system, it does not mean that Abraham was actually righteous, but he was declared, credited, imputed, righteous by faith alone. God is the only one that can declare someone righteous 
especially when they are like you and I, unrighteous. Just read about Abraham's life. It wasn't perfect righteousness. I'll tell you that right now. But what I want you to see, what Paul is pointing out, Abraham is justified before he did any works. Abraham was justified before he was even circumcised. But why would God do that? Why would God give a promise, declare him, impute him righteous before the seal of circumcision? That's a good question. Paul has the answer. Romans chapter 4. For if Abraham was justified by works, by circumstance, circumcision, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteous. God wanted to make it very clear. It is a gift. Abraham did not have to get circumcised in order to be justified. And that's the genius of Paul's argument with the Galatian church and the Judaizers. God counted and credited and imputed Abraham's righteousness before he had even been circumcised. He was still a Gentile. He was still a Chaldean. Verse 7, know then this, those of faith are sons of Abraham. It doesn't matter your physical descent, but your spiritual life. Paul is affirming that the the true children of Abraham, those who inherit the blessing, are not his posterity by physical descent, the Jewish people, but his spiritual progeny, men and women who share the same faith as Abraham and believers in Jesus Christ. Abraham has believed the gospel. He didn't understand it in its totality, but he believed the gospel, the promise of imputation and credit, righteousness by faith alone. And by the way, faith is not a works. Faith is the avenue. Faith faith is the avenue, the means by which God applies justification, his righteousness to the sinner. And like Abraham, listen, like Abraham, God treats all those who trust in Christ, who've had their sins forgiven and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to them by faith, free from condemnation. Unfortunately, today, people think you're certain whether you're you're a pastor's kid or, or, or even the Jewish people. God loves the Jewish people. God loves the Chinese. God loves the Koreans. God loves those in Iraq and Iran. God loves all people, all nations, all tribes, all tongues. And to just say, well, I am of this physical descent, therefore, God must, is wrong. Hear the words of Jesus. They said to Jesus, listen, we're, we're, our father is Abraham. He said, listen, if you sin, you're a slave of sin. We can't be a slave to sin. John 8, again. We can't be a slave to sin. We're, Abraham is our father. What did Jesus say? If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. Why? Because you're doing the works of your father. And by the way, he's the devil. Mama's with the devil. You're the children of it. Come to me, he says, if you want life. Everyone, Jew or Gentile, becomes a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We don't need to become Jewish. I'm Italian. I'm not Jewish. I've learned a lot from the Jewish people. Love them. Learned a lot from the Old Testament, the laws, the, 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 the ceremony. I mean, everything points to Jesus. That's great. Not trying to, we all come the same way. That's the point. It doesn't say that Abraham believed in God. Notice that. Notice what it says. Just Abraham believed God. He didn't just believe in God. James says the demons believe and they shudder. He had to believe in what God said and walk by faith and and believe what God had given him that promise and and walk in that promise. That's what he had to do. So notice verse 6, Paul proved justification by faith was always the plan of God. 
Chapter verse 7 showed that Galatians 2 are children of God by the same faith in Abraham. Abraham had no children. He believed God. He's justified. We become children. Verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me. He proves that justification is, is for everyone. All people, all nations, all tongues. Look what it says. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you, how many nations? One? All nations. All nations be blessed. Paul is saying, notice what Paul is saying. He's saying, God gave, first of all, God gave Abraham the promise. From the mouth of God, God gave that promise. And now Paul is saying, what does the scripture say? Scripture, the mouth of God, holds the same authority. B.B. Warfield. God in the scripture brought into such conjunction as to show that in point of directness of authority, no distinction has been made. And what was the scripture? What did they foresee? What did it preach to, to Abraham? The gospel Underline that, the gospel, the good news, extended to all people, all nations, all tongues, all tribes, would be declared righteous by God through faith alone in Christ alone. Who, who, who is in you, Abraham? You read that in chapter 12, chapter 15. In you, in your seed. Who is that seed? It's Jesus. The blessing, the universal blessing is secured in the gospel Matthew 1, 1, the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, that we can stand in right relationship because of Jesus. The Old Testament saints did not get saved by the works of the law. By works of the law, no one is justified, Paul said. The Old Testament saints got saved the same way the New Testament saints, you sitting here, get saved, by faith alone. In Christ alone. They were looking forward to the promise of the Messiah who would die, Genesis 3.15, and be that seed who would die for sin, you know, rise from the dead. They had glimpses of it. But it was by faith alone in the Old Testament, by faith alone in the New Testament. And the Judaizers were, were telling the Galatians that they should become sons of Abraham by circumcision in order to complete their conversion. Paul's saying, no, you already Listen, you are already children of Abraham. Why? Because just like Abraham believed God and he imputed righteousness, you believe the cross and the resurrection. And now you have been imputed his righteousness. Faith alone, you're already his children. Verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And here's the million-dollar question. What's the blessing in which he's talking about? Verse 9. We see it all throughout the chapter. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What's the blessing of Abraham? Let's hit the lights. So final question is, a lot of people maybe have a misunderstanding then about what you do in prosperity preaching. So the final question is this. To those critics that say that a preacher should not be living a life of luxury... What is your response to that? They're wrong. That's it? That it's a misunderstanding of the Bible that if you, if you go into the Old Covenant, do you think the Jewish people believe you should be broke? Are you saying that Jewish people... They appreciate money more than... Really? No, they believe in wealth. Some people would find that offensive. No, no, wait a minute now. 
I'm not talking about some people. I'm talking about the Bible. The blessing of Abraham. Abraham was extremely wealthy. And he had a covenant with God. Not the, it's not the Jewish blessing. It's the Abrahamic blessing. God, I get excited talking about it because I love it. And I started out deep in debt with nothing. Which is another story. But anyway... Say that it's biblical and that 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 there's a foundation in the Bible for this. Let me close it with this. Sure. I uh, I had to learn this, like I said, from the Bible and from my spiritual mentor, Oral Roberts, and, and I, I learned it from him, working with him, and then we became he was close friends until he died, and um, and he took the same heat for believing God would prosper you that I've taken over the years. And Abraham was a very, very wealthy man. Galatians chapter 3. If you belong to Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. And his promise was great wealth. Some of you may have remembered that series. Just so you know, that's not right. That's not right. A little hermeneutics here, right? How do you interpret the Bible? Why did Paul bring up the Abrahamic covenant in the first place? To prove that we are justified by faith in God, just like Abraham, and his name is Jesus. The promise, namely, his wife would have a son. His son would be in line to all, to give a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Verse 6, in him is not in Abraham. Himself, not in Buddha, not in Muhammad, not in Oprah, not in the president, not in your 401k. The, the, the offspring in which Paul is talking about that will come from Abraham it makes it very clear in chapter 3, verse 16. Abraham, he says, the promise were made to his offspring. It doesn't say to offsprings, referring to many, but to one offspring who is Christ. The blessing Paul has in mind is the gospel. The good news of salvation extended to everyone, that we can be declared righteous by God, just like Abraham on the basis of faith in him the context is clear that's why they twist scripture it's the greatest blessing of all in the text it says that we are justified by faith and that the spirit of god shown us that we are children of god he opened our minds opened our heart to see that we have been justified by faith alone so is it great wealth in which Abraham's promise to give to the Gentiles? Yeah. Justification by faith. There's no greater wealth that you could get than that. There's no greater wealth. And that the Holy Spirit comes on those who believe, who have trusted him, just like Abraham trusted God. Not stuff. Not money. Not prosperity. That's a damnable heresy. The greatest blessing is that we are justified by faith and the new birth of the Holy Spirit seals us for that day of redemption. That is the greatest wealth you and I can have this morning. Do you know that? You can receive the same blessing that Abraham experienced. You can be made right with God. What is, re- what is offered to you, you ask, you receive by faith in Christ. If you want the same blessing received that Abraham had, we have to receive it the same way. He was justified, made right, forgiven of sins, imputed righteousness, reconciled to God, redeemed, 
and has a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the blessing of Abraham. Do you know that? Just hearing it is not enough. You've got to respond. That's what conversion is. Conversion is to turn. It's to believe that you're a sinner. It's to believe that you cannot work your way and earn your way to heaven. That you can't earn your way into a right relationship with God. You can't earn your way into being accepted by God, forgiven by God, and in, in a right relationship with God, it's by faith alone. That Jesus Christ died on the cross, paid for all your sins, past, present, and future. He went into the grave and then rose from the dead to, ju- to prove our justification, to give us our justification, and that God's righteous life, Jesus' righteous life, perfect life, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, is imputed to you by faith. Do you know that this morning? We're going to sing. We're going to pray. Respond in faith. Believe, trust, rely upon the finished work of Jesus this morning if you have never done that. And if you've done that, let's rejoice and be thankful as children of the promise, children of Abraham by faith. Father, it seems so easy. The gospel of grace, it didn't come easy. It came through your son. Father, your son gave his life so that we can have life. Lord Jesus, thank you for your willing, obedient sacrifice on our behalf, absorbing the wrath we deserve, paying the penalty that we could never pay. And Holy Spirit, we pray right now that you would open our hearts and minds to see the beauty of Christ, see the work of Christ, to apply that work to our souls this morning, that we too can be forgiven of our sins and have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith, and that we may walk not in our flesh, not in, in, in trying to obey our way into the kingdom, but Lord, we may walk in obedience to you because of your justifying work in the gospel. Amen.